Friends, let's have a word of prayer together. Oh Lord, in this season when we so eagerly anticipate the celebration of your birth into the world, we also eagerly anticipate your presence with us now. We have gathered in your name. And as we have gathered, we remember that you have promised us that when we come together in your name, especially that you are present with us. And so we trust that promise, even though we may not feel anything different, even though it may seem like just the normal day, we know that you are here. We know that you are here always with us, inspiring us and protecting us and guiding us. And we have a hard time seeing that sometimes, but help us to see you today. Help us to learn about you. Help us to become even more expert, even more wise, even more caring and sensitive so that we might follow your way in the world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends, we are in chapter 18 and 19 of Genesis. And just to set the stage for us a little bit, uh, we remember last week's story, the end of the where we were in the story, um, is that three men appear kind of mysteriously uh, to visit with Abraham. And it turns out that they are messengers from God who are there to say to Abraham and Sarah that the birth of the long, long, long-awaited child is imminent. It's about here. And, um, and so that story continues now as we, we hear a little bit more about what these messengers from God are doing, not just speaking with Abraham and Sarah, but they have other things to do. And um, as we work through this, this section today, um, we're going to have a conversation between God and Abraham. And we'll look at that first because that's how it appears in the, the order of Genesis itself. In a sense, though, the conversation both sets up and then comments on the event that follows that conversation, which is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we'll take them in the order that they occur, but in a sense we'll be talking about the whole thing all at once. Does that make sense to you? Okay, so let's read together. Um, these are a little bit longer passages. I think it's so important for us, though, to read the text of Scripture. There's no way to study the Bible adequately unless you actually read the Bible. <laughs> what a novel idea. So, Genesis chapter 18, starting with verse 16. Then the men set out from there. These are the three who had come to visit with Abraham. And they looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? No, for I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, how great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah and how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. 
So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham came near and he's speaking to God and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he, God, said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him, Abraham, suppose 40 are found there. God answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak just once more. Suppose 10 are found there. And God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Okay. Lots going on here. Lots going on here. First of all, we have, in a sense, the side story for the moment of the messengers, the angels. That's, by the way, what, a, what an angel is. You're aware of that. An angel simply means a messenger from God. An angel does not have to be a sweet, cuddly little baby with round pink cheeks and a, and a bow and arrow or a harp or wings. An angel does not have to be a beautiful, gorgeous, blonde, blue-eyed woman. An angel can be anybody who is a messenger from God. In fact, those two visions of angels that I just mentioned to you really do not occur in Scripture, even though we have some that are decorating our yard now. That's another story. So God's messengers are now going on to Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham sees them on their way, but then, but then there's a little side conversation that goes on that actually turns out to be one of the most important conversations in the whole of the Old Testament. Now, that may sound like hyperbole. It may sound like overstatement, but in fact, it is not. The conversation that Abraham and God have with each other is arguably, I think, one of the most important conversations in the whole of the Old Testament. So the men have gone, and, and we hear God sort of saying to himself, you know, this is kind of like a little thought balloon that you would, God is thinking to himself, hmm, I have a plan for Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe I should tell Abraham about it. I have brought Abraham into my plan to redeem the whole world. Abraham is special to me 
because of the purpose that I have given him. Abraham himself is not any more special than any other human being, but God has selected him for a special purpose in the world. And it's almost as if God is sort of wondering to himself, well, maybe I should tell Abraham what's, what's going to come along here. I've told Abraham that I have a big plan for, for his life, and, and he's mostly been faithful to that plan, and we're still involved in that plan, so maybe I should talk to Abraham. And so after the, the angels leave, Abraham is standing before God. That's an important statement that we would easily miss out on. When you go to visit somebody who is in the social hierarchy of things more important than you, and let's say you walk into a room and they're sitting at their desk, do you just walk in and plop yourself down on the sofa and cross your legs and put your feet up on the, on the, on the table there? Now, if you're a kid today, maybe you would do that, but, but the manners with which we were raised, most of us in this room, I think, would say, no, if you go into the presence of someone who is socially superior to you, you stand there until they say, would you please sit down? Would you please put your feet on the coffee table? Whatever, right? So Abraham is standing before God. Very interestingly, there are some manuscripts that go way, way, way back, not to the originals. We don't have the original of anything of Scripture. But some manuscripts that go way, way back that have God standing instead of Abraham. That's a, a radical statement to think that the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, would stand in the presence of one of his creatures. But there you have it. Some people make a big deal about that. It is an interesting point to make because what's going to follow is an argument between Abraham and God. A negotiation session, right? It's absolutely fascinating. So God basically reveals to Abraham that Sodom and Gomorrah are full of sin. We'll talk about that in a little while. But Sodom and Gomorrah are full of sin and God's response to that is to wipe them out. Now, we've heard that kind of story before with the story of the flood, right? Right? Everything is so sinful, I'm just going to start over. Except God doesn't quite just start over. He saves a tiny little piece of creation with which to start over again. But here we have, God has a problem. God has heard about the, the incredible sinfulness of Sodom and Gomorrah, that whole region as it turns out. And, and God needs to do something about it. So God, God says, okay, well, I'm just going to wipe it out. And Abraham hears that plan. And Abraham is not happy with God. Has anybody in this room ever been not happy with God? Some of you might not be ready to admit that you're not happy with God for fear that God will find out and a lightning bolt will appear from out of a clear blue sky and you will be toast. <laughs> Abraham apparently is not afraid. Maybe he's afraid, we don't know, right? But Abraham decides, God, that's your plan, but I don't like it. It's not a good plan. What are the reasons that Abraham gives for this being not a good plan? He says, what if you find 50 righteous people there? 
Is that fair to the 50 righteous people to kill them too? And then I love the bargaining session, right? <laughs> I absolutely love you. Okay, what about 45? What about 40? It <laughs> goes back. Okay, okay, okay. Finally, we get down to 10. I don't know why Abraham stopped at 10, right? What about one righteous person? There's a bargaining session that goes on. And you notice in the bargaining that Abraham says some incredibly important things about God and about himself. It's important to keep that in mind. You have, in a sense, Abraham and God going head to head like this, in a sense, as equals, right? Has anybody here ever bargained for anything, by the way? Anybody here ever bargained? How many of you are really good at bargaining with people and bringing them down? Any of you good at it? What, your father-in-law was? Yeah, yeah, there we go. I, I, should I tell you this story? I don't know. Sometimes I have to decide if I'm going to tell you a story in here or not because I might want to use it later in a sermon. So you can't just put all your good stuff out. I don't know if that's going to happen. What's that? There are three righteous people here. You deserve to hear the story today. All right. You are in it. You're in the spirit today. Okay. You're halfway to another gold star. <laughs> What's that? Don't tell the men's Bible study. Oh, well, listen, what I tell the men's Bible study, you're never going to hear about. <laughs> so, so last night, Helen and I, were, we were actually looking for an angel to go in our front yard. We have, we have a nativity scene. It, it stand, Joseph, actually, in the nativity scene, stands up to about this high. And then there's a, a Mary and a Jesus, of course. It's all lit up. We're one of the few houses in the whole neighborhood that has a nativity scene to celebrate Christmas for some interesting reason. And, and we, needed to, we needed to put something on the other side of the driveway to kind of balance it out. So we went looking for an angel. And we actually found a couple of angels. The second place we went, uh, they only had one angel left, the display model. And so the guy there uh, said, I, I can give you 10% off on that. And we talked for a couple of minutes, and Helen said, what about 20%? <laughs> and he, he went for it. He did. So we got an angel for 20% off at one of the two major big box um, home supply stores. I'll just say it that way, right? The other one, we had to pay full price because it was still in the box and all that stuff. So if you, if you want to find out later on, I shouldn't say this on, on tape here. At any rate, so Abraham bargains, with, where was I? Abraham bargains with God and, and gets him down. But in the midst of that conversation, what does Abraham do? Abraham says, God, you're God. It would be unjust. It would be unrighteous. It would be wrong for you to kill righteous people just because you want to wipe out unrighteous people. You're the maker of everything. You're the judge of everything, right? You're the one who understands better than anybody because you created it right from wrong. Is it right of you to do this? Abraham is confessing, he's proclaiming his faith in who God actually is. And in a sense, as God remembers who he is, God says, oh yeah, I can't do that, can I? <laughs> Now, in the midst of that conversation, Abraham is also very clear, and Abraham's a very shrewd negotiator here because he doesn't want to get fried. He reminds God that he knows who he is. 
And he says, I really don't have a right. I have no standing before you to question your judgment or to try to change your mind. But I'm going to do it anyway. I am only dust and ashes. May I presume upon you one more time to see if we can get the price a little bit lower, right? So it's a fascinating conversation that, that reveals several things. It reveals that, that Abraham knows who he is, a mere mortal. He knows who God is, God. But he's willing to engage in this conversation with God. And you see that throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, that people who really trust God's love and it's only people who really trust God's love, I think, who are willing to step out and argue with God. You see arguments with God all throughout the Bible. Now, God always wins the argument in some sense, right? But Abraham argues with God. And the argument, and this is really the most important thing we're going to talk about today, the argument is about what God can do what God will do, what God should do about the problem of human sinfulness. Now let's unpack that for just a moment, right? God creates the whole creation and is perfect. He creates Adam and Eve. He creates humanity and they're perfect. But in order to create them, as free and independent beings, he must give them the option of deciding not to be who God made them to be, and they take that option. That's the definition of sin in some sense, our human pride that says, no, we'll do it our way. And that creates a problem for God because in humanity, this is my summary of theology in some sense, in humanity's decision to do things differently than the way God created them to be, humanity chose the path of destruction, dysfunction, misery, suffering, pain, and death. When we choose a way that is not God's way, that's what we choose. We choose to contradict, to erase, to wipe out God's plan for blessing and goodness. That's what sin is. That's why God takes sin so, so seriously. Because ultimately it's bad for us. God created us out of perfect love and then watched us destroy ourselves. What's God going to do about that? So there's a couple of options. One is the option of what uh, theologian Brudemann calls kind of a closed system. You sin, you get wiped out. Why? Number one, you have had the incredible audacity to choose something different from what the Creator chose for you. Who are you to do that? You deserve to die. We understand that feeling, right? Two, in your choosing for sin, you are inflicting harm on other people. That's the consequence of sin is harm to yourself and harm to other people. Canceling out God's blessing and goodness for them. Better that you die in order to protect them. We can see why it makes perfect sense for God to wipe out people who do wrong. Now Abraham posits the question this way. He said, what about the few people who do right? The righteous, the 50 righteous. 
And we have to begin asking the question then. And the Old Testament asks the question. In the New Testament, it's brought to a, a very, very sharp point, very crystal clear. The, one of the problems, in fact, the, the problem is that you can, put the, the, you can take the category of the unrighteous who deserve to be eliminated from the face of existence and the righteous who deserve to keep going. There's only one problem with that. Do you know what the problem is? There's no one righteous. Romans 3.21 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know that verse. All. What part of all don't you all understand? <laughs> right? So who is righteous? Right? Jesus is righteous. So what's God going to do about this? Abraham in this conversation, in a sense, comes off as, as understanding God's dilemma even more so than God does. God is just ready to go wipe them out. Now, we, we can't quite go that far, right? Now, we know in the story, though, God does go that far, and there's more detail to come in the story, but that's the issue. That's the question. What is God going to do with this creation that he loves? Does he have the creativity, the power, the will, the ability to save something that has gone completely wrong? Can God do that or not? Because when you look at the face of it, there's no one righteous. God should just wipe everything out. Is God big enough to find a different way? What do you think? Of course. Who said of course? There we go. Why did you say of course? Okay. If God can create everything, certainly he has the power to recreate it, right? To save it. Yeah, yeah. There, that's the question. That's the issue in all of this. And so let's go. Let's go to the next piece of the story and see what happens here. Okay? We'll read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah because that story itself, uh, in a sense, is commentary uh, on this conversation that Abraham has had with God. And as I mentioned, the conversation sets up the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is chapter 19, verses 1 to 29. The two angels, for some reason we've gone from three angels to two angels. This is evidence of how the, the, a lot of the details of the story are sort of lost to history. There's change in, in all of this. But the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. Lot is a key figure here in the sense that he's, he's the reason that we're talking about all these things in some sense, because Lot and Abraham are related. When Lot saw them, he sees the angels. He rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can rise early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the square. But he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Lot went out of the door to the men, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. 
Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they replied, stand back. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien. They're talking about Lot. And he would play the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near the door to break it down. But the men inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great, so that they were unable to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or else you will be consumed in the punishment of the city. But he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and left him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, they said, Flee for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the hills, or else you will be consumed. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Your servant has found favor with you, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot flee to the hills, for fear the disaster will overtake me, and I die. Look, that city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Very well, I grant you this favor too, and will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and saw the smoke of the land going up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the plain, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had settled. Okay. This story... Uh, is one of those in the Old Testament that gets a lot of airtime in, in the Western Christian world, and I think in all of the Christian world. Uh, and and it, it gets a lot of airtime because it's important, uh, but because it's gotten a lot of airtime, it's really important that we go back and look at it very, very carefully. Because like with any story that you think you know, there are things that you don't know or things that need to be rethought, or things that need to be mentioned. First of all, let's talk about a couple of, the, of the, the more minor things, if you will, and then come to a couple of the major things. 
One of the more minor things has to do with how could God have destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and all the cities of that region. It's not just Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone come down from heaven, right? There may be some some, um, origin of this story in an earthquake uh, or a volcano or some kind of story that talks about stuff coming down from heaven and destroying people. You know, maybe this story sort of originated in in Pompeii, even though that's much later on in history. Who knows? But something like that. And so this this supernatural event of God destroying this area might have some of its, its roots in what we would think of scientifically today as natural occurrences, okay? But as I say about all miracles, if you believe that there is a God who created everything, then it should be very easy to believe that God can take one tiny little piece of his creation at one moment in time and do something different with it than he did in making it all at the beginning. If you don't believe in God, then there's no good reason to believe in miracles. But if you do believe who God is, who we say God is, then it should be easy to believe a miracle. Does that make sense to you? And it's not the miracle itself of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not the means and all that that, that, that gets the major attention in this story. Okay, so let's, let's for a moment put aside that question of God can't do such a thing. That sort of thing doesn't happen. That's somebody's imagination, whatever. That's not the major point of the story. Another piece of the story. Something that as a child, I think this, this captures everybody's imagination, and that's Lot's wife, right? She looks back and turns into a pillar of salt, poof, right? Where does that come from? Well, in this region, in this region, you have the Dead Sea, which is now 35% salt because the water doesn't get out of the Dead Sea. It only comes into the Dead Sea and it evaporates, and all the salt and other minerals that are in the water that are coming from the Jordan River eventually pile up at the Dead Sea. So at the Dead Sea in that region, you have big formations of salt crystals. Maybe this story originated as a way of explaining what those salt crystals were. Who knows? But again, the story of miracles, if God says, by turning back, uh, disobeying my word, you turn into a pillar of salt, then so be it, right? The point is not the miracle. The point is that Lot's wife disobeys God's messengers. In effect, she disobeys God. She looks back. Now, we could, we could let's do this for just a second. Why do you think, uh, why do you think Lot's wife would, would look back? Why would you look back? Curiosity, yeah. I wonder if this is actually going to happen, right? Right? Why else would, would she look back? Okay, those were her people, right? Uh, right, maybe some of her friends, maybe some others of her family, right? We can't play with the numbers too much, but who we, who we think is, has left Sodom is, right, Lot and his wife and his two daughters. The sons-in-law are not mentioned. Right, and they're betrothed to the women. They're not quite yet married, right? So maybe six people total, right? Mm-hmm. And so she looks back. What's another reason that she might look back? Yes. It's her home. Her home it's her home. There. Her belongings, her yeah. keepsakes, yeah. the things she inherited, you know, from yeah. the family. And 
Yeah. We are attached to our homes, of course. It's a natural, natural, all kinds of good reasons that she would look back. Here's, a, here's another reason I'll give you so that we can just move on. Maybe she was eager to see the destruction of all those evil people. They're bad people. I'm a good person. God is saving me. God is going to fry them. I want to watch it happen. Who knows? The text doesn't tell us any of that. Okay? But that's, it's a, in a sense a piece of the side story. Let's go to what often is uh, understood to be one of the major points of this story, and let's, let's talk about that. What was the great sinfulness of Sodom and Gomorrah? What specifically was it? Was it one thing? Was it multiple things? What was going on there? Now, it's fascinating. Last week we got to talk about circumcision. This week we get to talk about, about rape and sexuality. So... If anybody says church is ever boring to you, you can tell them no. <laughs> right? All the men come and surround Lot's house, and they want to rape the two men that are in Lot's house. So this has been taken as a story uh, that expresses God's displeasure with homosexuality. Okay, let's just say it flat out. All right? The Bible does that sometimes. Uh, as we see subsequent interpretations of this story. However, however, other times in the scripture, and I've listed the references for you if you'd like to, to look them up, other times when other parts of scripture, other people later on after the story talk about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, they don't mention rape, they don't mention homosexuality, they only mention great unrighteousness. And so... For those who want to use this story as a condemnation story of homosexuality, and I full well understand, believe me, I understand the tenderness and the sensitivity of this question. For those who want to use this story as anti-gay, anti let's just say it straight out, okay? Um, there, there, there is something to that. However, you don't have to take it that way. And the real issue, the real issue is the issue of rape, right? Now, I find it very interesting that Lot is very willing in order to protect his guests out of that sense of Middle Eastern hospitality, he's willing to give up his two daughters to gang rape. There's nothing made of that fact. And yet that thought is abhorrent, of course, right? And so... I think that the best thing we can do, someday if you want to talk with me about the questions of sexuality, I'm happy to do that. Um, but I don't want us to focus on that as an issue here. The simple issue is that God has been made aware, God sees, God knows what's going on, that Sodom and Gomorrah, I think probably in many respects, not just for one particular sin, if you will, if that sin, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are just hopelessly lost. Okay? And as soon as I say the word hopeless, I have to correct myself and say there's always hope with God. Okay? At any rate, so let's not get stuck on that question of what the actual sin was. There is great, there's plenty of sin to go around and you don't have to, to focus on the, the sexuality aspect. You can focus on violence. You can focus on rape. You can focus on all kinds of other things that are present in that instance. All right? And so, what does God do? God rescues. Now, by my count, there's only six people that God rescues. Lot, his wife, the two daughters, 
and, and the two, uh, the, their, their, two fi their fiancés, right? They're called sons-in-law. This is an issue of how marriage is accomplished in the Middle East then, right? So six people. So right there, God has, uh, God has bargained himself down a little bit more. There weren't 10, there were only six, right? And what does he do? He saves them, but everybody else gets wiped out. Yeah, yeah. At the most, it's six, right? Maybe it's just four. They had the permission to say six. Right? Okay, okay. I, that's possible. The, the, text, the text doesn't give us enough information to say that the, the two boys were not with them, right? They're just not mentioned again, right? And then Lot's wife meets her own. I, I mean, I can't imagine that being turned into a pillar of salt is a good thing. So it's only three ultimately that get saved. Yeah. Okay, but also later on when the daughters seduce the father, it's because there's no men there for them. Oh, that's true, huh? That's true. So maybe the boys, yeah, the boys didn't make it out. They didn't believe Lot. That's the way of sons-in-law. What can you say? No. <laughs> However many it was, it wasn't 10, right? Right? It wasn't 10. So Lot and the two girls are saved. And Abraham's, Abraham's kind of watching it all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Lot was his nephew, yes. Lot was his nephew, and his daughters are that come from him, mm -hmm. so it was still part of Abraham that That gets... makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm trying to save the boys. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so now let's go back to what, what... Thank you for all that. Let's go back to the main issue, the main question. Must God... Does, is the only option to God the option to destroy those who are against him, okay? On the one hand, the Bible has plenty of evidence of evil people being destroyed, right? All throughout the Old Testament. And yet that question still lingers in the minds of people, in the souls of people, about how can you be righteous enough so that God will not destroy you? And ultimately, if you follow, there's one line of thought in the Old Testament that says, here's the way to be righteous enough. Do these things and don't do these things and you're golden. But then along comes Jesus, and before Jesus, people like David, who say, I'm, I can't be righteous enough. I'm not righteous enough, right? Even David argue after, uh, along, let's say, along with Abraham and Moses, David is arguably one of the most important characters of the Old Testament, right? He, he finds favor with God. God uses him mightily, and yet he's a horrible, abject failure in many ways. David himself, Abraham himself, understands that they're not perfect. And so that question still lingers. What can God do? What will God do with a person who is not perfect? i.e., what will God do with me? Now, if you believe that you are perfect, then I believe that you are seriously mentally ill and given over to evil, okay? And let's have that conversation. I'll just say that flat out, right? All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. What does God do? What does God ultimately do? And who is God ultimately in how he deals with evil, sin, unrighteousness that is in his very creatures that he created. What does God do? He sends Jesus. He sends Jesus. 
And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes our sin and the consequence of it upon himself. This is one of the fundamental theological affirmations of Christianity. And the roots of it are actually in the Old Testament as well. That the suffering, the pain, the dysfunction, the evil, the death that are the logical consequence of human sin, God takes into himself because he's the only one who's big enough to deal with it. And he deals with it. Does that mean that sin should be taken lightly? Oh, no. Because the consequences of sin are everywhere. The Bible never says that even though God forgives you, that, that God removes you from the consequence of your sin. All of us have suffered the consequence of sin. All of us have inflicted the consequence of our sin on others, right? And God's the only one who can deal with it. Yes. But even then, we have to admit our guilt, our sin, and ask for forgiveness. Right, right. It's not just automatic. It's not just automatic. God just, just doesn't just say, if you don't even, even recognize that you're guilty in some sense, right? We have to admit that. We have to recognize that. Now, part of our sin is that we are not able to admit all of our sin, and so I think there's a piece of even the ability to repent in some sense comes from God. But we're also given responsibility to recognize that and to do that. And, and the most important aspect of that is that that's the only way through towards greater and greater righteousness, right? The, the, the most righteous people whom I know are the people who are most aware of their sinfulness, and the most willing to let God transform and change them. The person who is unaware of their sinfulness or unable to admit their sinfulness is the person who is furthest away from the heart of God and has more work to do than others. That's just a simple dynamic of human life. You cannot quantify it, but you know it's there, right? Absolutely. So, in a sense, what you have here is a proclamation of the gospel that God saves us from ourselves by what God does, not by what we do. And it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus appears on the scene because that's who God is. Now, God did destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. A bunch of people got wiped out, right? God still has the right to do what God Whatever God wants to do, whatever God determines is just. Even in our understanding that God saves us from ourselves by suffering for us, that still does not put a limit on what God can do or should do. There are lots of so-called innocent righteous people who get wiped out in, in the world still. And there are lots of sinful unrighteous people who sail merrily through life and eventually die at a ripe old age in their bed. That injustice, that unrighteousness, that weirdness, that imbalance to us is still there, and yet we always come back to God and say, God, you're the only one that can deal with this. Please do deal with it. Does that make sense? Now, there is another little story. We won't take the time to read it, right? Lot and his two daughters, and I'll, I'll agree with you, I'll buy that. Lot and his two daughters, everybody in the region has been wiped out, and we need to have babies. 
And so they go in and have babies with their dad. And there is no moral, spiritual, ethical comment made about that story. Right? We would want to talk about incest and all kinds of interesting things. But, but the story itself doesn't, doesn't pronounce any moral judgment on that. That's just how Lot's line continued. Right? That's how Lot's line continued. So we'll have to leave it there. And, um, and then we'll see each other next year. Is there something burning inside of you that you must say or else you'll explode before we stop? There's a lot in this, isn't there? Yes, there is a lot. His name is Lot. He, uh, ooh. There you go. Let's pray. God, thank you for saving us. We need it in Jesus. Amen.